This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Memory Lane. I am your host, Noah Hiles, and joining me today is actually our first member of not only one Hall of Fame, but two Hall of Fame, more than two Hall of Fames, a Hall of Famer in high school, college, and professional football. Of course, I'm talking about Jimbo Covert of the Pitt Panthers and the Chicago Bears. Jimbo, how are you today? I'm good, Noah. How about you? I can't complain. I'm talking to a Hall of Famer, so I'm doing all you. right. So, and I'm, uh, and I'm also talking to uh, a whippy old legend, a guy who grew up in Western Pennsylvania, and that's yeah. kind of where I want to start here. Um, yeah. You played your high school ball. You grew up in uh, Beaver County, went to Freedom High School. Uh, my first question for you, is Beaver County the most underrated football factory in the world, considering all the greats that have come out of there? Yeah, you know, I, I think so. I think, um, you know, a while ago when all the steel mills were working and uh, it was, you know, you know, J&L Steel one time at 25,000 people. My dad worked at Armco Steel, my grandfather, my uncle. Um so, you know, when you think about that, all those steel mills that are up and down the Beaver County um, and uh, Friday nights was a big thing and it was a tradition. And um, I just think that you know, that that kind of culture and that work ethic and uh, just toughness uh, just, I think, really was indicative of what, you know, high school football was back then. So I, I think maybe not not as much of a um, force as it was say 25 30 years ago but there's still great players coming out of out of beaver county and out of western pennsylvania that's a good thing yeah i think what makes it unique compared to other areas i mean there are the texases the the floridas but those are a lot of big school powerhouses where if you come to western pennsylvania especially in beaver county there's not one six-day school in beaver county it's a lot of small schools you have your aliquippas your beaver falls your freedoms uh, and, and a couple other programs that go along with them. And I just think that that's unique, that it's small schools that are producing these high-quality athletes. Sure. I mean, you know, to Freedom High School, graduated from there. I think we had 500 kids in my entire high school. Um, and uh, and we had, I think I was in a really large class, uh, which was 220 people. So, you know, when my son went to school down here in Florida, I think they had uh, – you know, 6,000 kids, you know, at Cypress Bay. So, I mean, it's completely different. Now, I was reading up on your high school career, obviously, very impressive. But I, I read that you were just as good as a wrestler as a football player. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I loved wrestling. You know, it was my mother's favorite sport. And, um, you know, I didn't really grow up wrestling. I didn't really start until I was eighth or ninth grade. So a little bit different than kids out east that, you know, kind of grow up wrestling and, you know, and, you know, tournaments when they're in the grade school. I didn't do that. But I gravitated towards it. And um, I just thought it was a tremendous asset for me for football as well, because it touches such great balance, strength. You know, endurance. I had to be. I mean, the greatest shape I've ever been in my life was when I was a high school wrestler. So, um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. So, uh, you know, and I was pretty successful at it. You know, I took third in the state twice. Um, you know, I, I still replay uh, some of those matches in state tournament that I might have done something different um, and uh, maybe would have been state champ. But, you know, those are way days gone by. But, I mean, I love wrestling. And uh, I think, you know, my, my nephew, uh, Jimmy Covert, is a uh, coach at Freedom High School Wrestling, and they've done extremely well. And uh, he's really building a hell of a career for himself there. And I think that program is doing great. Yeah, I mean, we talked, we just talked about how great high school football is in Western PA. But I mean, wrestling in the state of Pennsylvania is arguably, and you're not going to find it better anywhere else. And it was pretty good in your heyday as well with how Cannon McMillan and other programs were in the 80s, 70s. Sure. You're facing some stiff competition. Sure. Um, so speaking of glory years, uh, you go on to play for Pitt. And what's looked at by many as the best years in the history of those programs uh, in that in that program, um, you're playing with guys who have some gold jackets now. Uh, sure. But the thing I really want to talk about um, was how you got to the offensive line. You originally were playing defensive line yeah. and you had a position change after an injury. Take me through how that all went uh, came to be. Well, you know, I got recruited as a defensive lineman, and uh, Jimmy Johnson recruited me. He was down at my high school, I think, you know, every other day. And um, when we played defensive line, and, uh, you know, when I got there as a freshman, you know, I played in every game. I started a few games. But, um, you know, there was three or four sophomores in front of me, and, you know, Bill Neal, Greg Miser, Jerry Borowski. And, uh, you know, I just think they felt that they wanted to try to keep those guys together. They were – great players, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it was just hard to crack the lineup. So at defensive tackle. And so when, um, you know, I just wanted to play and, you know, I came back and, uh, you know, my sophomore year and, and uh, uh, was playing defense and got hurt um, in practice. And I had a bad shoulder in high school that was, you know, toilet rotator cuff and just kept popping out. And I just finally decided it was the right thing to do. So I got it done. Uh, and I missed the rest of that year. So when I came back as a redshirt sophomore, I was still playing defense, still frustrated, you know, didn't feel like I was going to, you know, crack the line up. And uh, Joe Moore was the offensive line coach. Pitt talked to me and said, hey, you know, why don't you try to come over here and see what you can do? And, you know, they were having problems replacing a guy named Bob Gruber who played in the league for a while with Rams and uh, a good football player and, um and I went over there and, uh, and I think it was 12 days left to spring practice and, and just tried to learn it that whole summer. And, you know, first couple games were a little shaky. Uh, um, my uh, first couple games at left tackle. But, uh, you know, after one or two games, about two games, I really settled in and the rest is history. I mean, I, I, I'm really fortunate. I, I had you know, great coaching. I had a guy named Joe Moore, like I said, who I think is the greatest offensive line coach in the history of the game at any level. And um, if you look at what he has done and how many NFL players he's produced, I mean, his track record speaks for itself. So, you know, I don't have to brag on him, but, uh, you know, he, he was a huge influence on my life and, and my career. And I just owe everything to him as far as a football player. You mentioned guys in the NFL uh, looking at your teammates on the offensive line while you were at Pitt. Uh, Russ Grimm, Mark May, Bill Fralick uh, was – was that the best offensive line you played on in your entire – I mean, just looking at that talent across the board, those are some big names. 
Well, I mean, if you think about it across the line, I mean, Rob Fadum, Paul Dunn and Emil Boers and Jim Sweeney. And I mean, uh, you could just keep going down the line and uh, all those guys played in the NFL as well. And so um, it's, uh, you know, it's been a, um, you know, uh, we were lucky at Pitt to have great recruits. You know, Jackie Sherrill did a great job of recruiting, you know, great players, big linemen, strong linemen on both sides of the football. And uh, that really allowed us to do the things we wanted to do with Danny back there. And, um, you know, we we always had a great rushing attack as well as, you know, we still threw the ball 35 times a game. So, I mean, I think it was really um, uh, probably a result of the great offensive linemen that they recruited. Who was the best player that you played with at Pitt? There's a lot to choose from. You know, that's hard to say. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, I went to Pitt and I wanted to play defense. And I, my number when I first got there was 98. And uh, because of Hugh Green was 99. And I just looked up to him and I thought he was uh, probably the greatest defensive player in college football history, in my opinion. I don't see anybody that's, uh, you know, that's going to, uh, you know, challenge that. I mean, if you, you look at what he, he did his entire time there, four-time All-American, I mean, and had a great career in the NFL. He just, you know, got injured and just couldn't play that long. But, uh, I mean, he's a fantastic player. I mean, you know, I mean, and you, see, you could just go down the line. You know, you got Dan Marino and you got other players that are just, uh, you know, that I play with, Bill Fralick and Russ Grimm. And, I mean, it's – I mean, I could keep talking. I mean, there's just a lot of guys. I mean, look, you got Chris Dolman on the other side, the Hall of Famer. And, um, yeah, it's just – yeah, it's we were really, really lucky with the amount of talent that we had back then, and I think it's all due to Coach Cheryl and you know the staff and who they recruited. You mentioned Dan Marino. Uh, I read a story prepping for this about how the two of you trained for the NFL draft together, uh, sure. and, and you lived together. Uh, take me through that process. I mean, you, both of you knew you're going to be first round picks. Uh, Dan obviously went a little later than yeah. he was anticipated anticipating to go. I think he. Uh, made some teams pay for that over his career. Uh, but take me through the training process and then draft day, seeing uh, you and all your friends get taken. Well, you know what? We were uh, we were roommates of Pitt, me and Danny and Paul Dunn, and uh, really um, – uh, it was funny in the, in the, in the summer times when uh, the agents would call and, you know, trying to get people on the phone, you know, they would, they would call and ask for Danny and I'd answer the phone. And uh, it was kind of interesting and about, you know, and I'd say, he's not here. He'd be sitting there. He didn't want to talk to anybody. And then about two hours later, the same guy would call the same number asking for me and Danny would answer the phone. Right. And they, I don't know why they couldn't connect (laughs) on the number. Uh, Interesting. Anyway. Um, we kind of had fun, you know, that, that whole summer and, but we work really, really hard. Um, and, uh, you know, every year I worked in the summer, but that year I just decided I was going to focus on, on getting ready. And we spent a lot of time in the weight room, a lot of time conditioning, a lot of time running, Danny's jumping rope. Um, it, uh, you know, I think that really helped us. And then that year, unfortunately, we didn't have the record kind of record that we wanted to have. And that was really, I think, uh, disappointing for everybody. But, um, you know, when the, you know, then we got in the postseason, I played in the hula bowl and the senior bowl with Danny and he was MVP of both games. So you're sitting, you got, I think you got a car in the senior bowl. So you're sitting there thinking this guy's going to get drafted extremely, extremely high. 
And um, he just didn't. And, uh, you know, he fell back from a lot of, you know, stupid, you know, untrue rumors that uh, that were out there. And uh, he kept following. But you know what? He ended up in the best place because he went to a good football team that had a good record. They had good players. They were a playoff team. He got a chance to play for Don Shula. Um, and, uh, it, you know, became the right place for him to be. So, um, and, you know, myself, I, I thought I was, you know, I was probably when the year started, I was probably, a you know, mid, you know, like say maybe 20, mid twenties pick. I thought, um, maybe before the year started, at least that was the feedback I was getting from people in the first round. And then I really, you know, focused on my game that my senior year. And then when the combine started, then, you know, I thought I was going to be a, you know, somewhere in the teens pick, maybe, maybe, you know, low teens. Um, and then I started hearing from like, you know, guys like uh, Bill Parcells with the Giants, I think you're picking 10 or 11. He said, we're going to draft you. And then, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs said, we're going to draft you if you're there. And I think they were seventh or something. Um but I never thought I was going to go to the Bears. It just came out of nowhere. And I think how that happened was as John Elway, you know, went to Baltimore and then, you know, all the swapping that went on and then Chris Hinton got picked in Denver and then they swapped that. Um, that's how I ended up going, you know, the sixth player picking the draft. So you end up in Chicago and you uh, play under a head coach who had a very, very similar path to you and Mike Dick, another Beaver County guy a pit guy, first round pick by the Chicago Bears. Um, take me through your relationship with Coach Ditko. Were you guys close? Yeah, um, we still are. And and uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I mean, he's the reason why, you know, the Chicago Bears, you know, were a resurrected team. When I got there, we weren't very, very good. He was here a year before in 1982. And, um, you know, I think in a five-year period, uh, 84 through 88, we won more games than any team. In NFL history up to that point. I mean, people forget. I mean, we were 15 and one and and um in 85, but we were 14 and two in 86. We were a 50 yard field goal away from being 15 and one two years in a row, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and our 84, you know, team when uh, when we got there, we should have uh, you know, we could have, you know, we lost to San Francisco in the NFC championship game, but we didn't have, you know, Jim McMahon was hurt. You know, Steve Fuller did the best he could, but, you know, I mean, Jim McMahon was something special for us and proved it. So, yeah, I mean, he did a phenomenal job. And, you know, no, when I first got in there, when my first practice came into, you know, into the meeting room and he said, okay, guys, I got good news and I got bad news. He says, uh, good news is we're going to the Super Bowl. Bad news is half you guys won't be here when we do. Um, and I mean, he meant it. There were just guys that were hanging around, getting a paycheck, just weren't willing to pay the price, and he wanted to weed them out. And when he did, uh, you know, good things started to happen. Was he as tough as uh, he was perceived, or was he more of a player's coach? Oh, no, he was tough. You know, um, I don't know what the term player's coach even means because I never really had one. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I don't know what that means, but. Uh, you know, I just think that that being a coach at any level is a difficult proposition. I mean, you got to deal with so many different egos, attitudes, you know, what buttons to push, how to motivate people. Some people were motivated by praise. Some people were motivated by by um, 
you know, other ways where you uh, you criticize them and they get motivated because they feel like, hey, I'm not going to let that criticism come my way again. Um, and, um, you know, I think Mike Dick uh, did all that. You know, I mean, he was rough on you. I mean, when you lost a game, you know, Monday morning film sessions were not pleasant. Um, but when you played well and, uh, you know, he gave, you know, he gave you the credit and recognized you in front of your teammates. So, you know, coaching is a tough deal. I wanted to, I never wanted to be a coach. And those are some of the reasons why. So you get there uh, a couple years before things really start get or really start to get moving in Chicago and you're you're around to see it all develop you see the final picks you see the defense really starting to come together um McMahon playing his role and everything what's it like to watch that juggernaut of a team really come to form when did it kind of click to you that we're going to be really good you know what when i first got there um like I said, we just weren't very good. And, you know, I don't know how many games we lost in the first, you know, you know, half of the season. Um, I think we won. I think we were three and five. I don't know what the record was. I just know that we weren't very good. And we lost more games in, you know, five weeks and I lost in my, you know, three years of pit. So kind of, kind of interesting, but, um, but, you know, you could tell that there was such a nucleus of players there. I mean, when you think about it, when, when, when I got there in 1983, you know, Jim McMahon was there, Walter Payton was there, Mike Singletary was there, right? Um, Dan Hampton was there, Steve McMichael was there. I mean, they, you know, they had a nucleus, but the class of 83, all the guys that came in with me, me and Richard Nett and, and uh, Mike Richardson, Willie Galt, um, you know, Mark Bortz, um, it, we changed it, you know, uh, Tom Thayer, and he came a couple years later. You know, they plugged us in at the, in these roles that they needed us in, in these certain positions, and then everything started to gel, you know. You know, Jim McMahon got the protection he needed. You know, we had a deep threat in Willie Galt. Uh, Walter was so great that, you know, he just needed more offensive linemen. You know, Dave Dorison came in in 83, and, I mean, you know, when Todd Bell held out in 1985, he stepped right in and made the Pro Bowl. So when you think about all those things, um, that class of 83 is what really gelled the Chicago Bears and I think catapulted us to the success that we had in the 80s. In college, you blocked for arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. You moved to the pros where you get to block for arguably the greatest running back of all time. Sure. Uh, Walter Payton was a unique runner. Um, was it ever at times difficult to block for sweetness or was it just always kind of a privilege knowing that 34 is going to get the ball a lot and it's probably going to end up well? No, it was never, never a uh, chore. I mean, I think Walter Payton, <clears throat> excuse me, is the greatest football player that ever lived. And I, 100% agree with that. Um, when you think about um, the great running backs in the history of the game, <clears throat> excuse me, and there are a lot of them. I mean, you have to compare him to like the legends of the game, you know. I mean, the you know, Jim Thorpes and Red Granges and, you know, Jim Browns. I mean, you can't – it's hard for, for, for you to compare them to a contemporary because, I mean, I know Jim Brown is, but that was the 60s and these – probably the greatest running back that ever lived, but Walter Payton was the greatest football player that ever lived and he could do anything. I mean, he was a great blocker. He was a exceptional running back. I mean, he could throw the football as far as anybody on the field. Um, I mean, he lets you kick if you, if you let him. 
Um, and he was just a remarkable athlete. I mean, I've seen him walk 100 yards on his hands. I mean, when you when you think about things like that and what, what he could do, you know, he was amazing. Um, and then, you know, playing with Dan Marino, I mean, we knew that and, and everybody knew that they played with him. You know, on Fridays, you know, before games on Saturday, we just do a walkthrough and go out and you know, catch some balls from, from Danny. And that ball would come whistling. I'm telling you what. I mean, he could rifle it. I mean, he probably, I mean, the impact of that ball. I never wanted to be a receiver. I mean, if you see some of his receivers in, in Miami, they got all broken fingers and everything like that from the way he threw the ball. But, I mean, just, a, you know, just an incredible player. So I was really, really fortunate. And then. You know, like I said, I played in 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 Chicago with Jim McMahon, and um, I think Jim McMahon is the smartest football player I ever played with. I mean, I've I've seen him do things. You know, and you know, he didn't have the greatest arm. You know, he he he. You know, obviously not like Danny. Um, he he didn't. You know, he wasn't six four and two thirty five like Danny. You know, he was barely six foot tall and probably weighed one hundred and ninety pounds, soaking wet. But he knew where to throw the football, and he knew you know. He knew exactly what the defense was doing. You couldn't mess with them on coverages and disguise coverages. A lot of our big plays came on audibles. Um, he changed the play all the time um, when it would come in and Dicka would get mad at him. But, you know, we were successful. So, I mean, I, I'm a big Jim McMahon fan. I just wish he could have stayed healthy. Did you guys ever uh, maybe get annoyed? Uh, I guess my question would be, or bringing all this together, I think the 85 Bears were kind of like the first example of a modern football team where right. you had some outside personality and flair to it. I mean, McMahon with the headband and you had the, you know, the dances and everything. You had you were like the first really cool football team. <laughs> uh, and did that ever cause any problems, you know, the extra media attention you guys got or was it just business as soon as you put the helmets on? You know, I think in 85 it was so new um that um <clears throat> excuse me that um <clears throat> that it was so new that that uh it was just you know everyone enjoying themselves and you know having you know taking a ride and enjoying the ride and then you know i think as you know the next year it got a little weird because then it became you know who was getting this commercial and who was doing that and just the media attention and then people and then if someone did something then the media would say well this guy's doing this and not focusing on football and so that's real when you talk about social media today i mean social media if that was around when the 85 bears were around i mean i don't even know what i mean who knows how long that team would stay together maybe just one year yeah maybe and, one week yeah maybe one week and <laughs> um and so when you think about it, um, you know, all the outside influences were then attacking, saying this guy's doing this. He should be focusing on football. You know, this guy's not healthy. He should, you know, he didn't work hard enough in the off season. And it just, you know, it just wasn't a tenable situation. So, um, you know, then the team started to break up and, you know, unfortunately we only won one Super Bowl. but if we could have kept our quarterback healthy, I mean, like I said, we were 14 and two without a quarterback the next year. And, uh, you know, so, so uh, I think we could have won at least another Super Bowl. What was it like <clears throat> facing that 85 Bears defense every practice? I mean, that, that had to have been more challenging than most games, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I had to block Richard down every day in practice, I knew when I was, you know, on Sundays, it, it was, you know, I wasn't going to face anybody better than him. You know, when I had to block down and try to block Dan Hampton, 
um, who who I think is one of the greatest inside players, you know, of all time, and Steve McMichael, who I believe should be a Hall of Famer. I mean, I saw, you know, in that, in, in, in and there's a period, I'd say 84 to, you know, 87, 88, that nobody played the inside position better than Steve McMichael and, you know, has over 100 sacks. I mean, just an incredible player. So when you had to play against those guys every uh, day, um, you, you got you got pretty good. And we didn't do what they do today. You know, I remember my, when, you know, my son was at Iowa. I said, well, what's practice day? He goes, we're in shells, Dad. I go, what's shells? I mean, I didn't know what they were, you know. And so he's like, well, they're a little like, you know, mini shoulder pads. <clears throat> and I said, we never did that. Excuse me. And I said, we never did that. You know, we were – we did had training camp for six weeks of two days, two practices a day, full pads both days. I mean, that's what we did in our when the season started, we were, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, full pads. Friday was supposed to be half pads until someone hit somebody. And then in 1985, you know, I think that's the second week we were full pads Wednesday, Thursday and Friday because um, it's just the amount of, you know, like uh, aggressiveness our defense and our offensive line had together. So um, when you play against guys like that every day, you're going to be pretty good. You guys uh, had a defensive coordinator who uh, is a legend in himself, and in, in Buddy Ryan. Um, sure. What was the was? Did you think that that also added to the level of competition in practice, where Buddy just wanted that defense to show, hey, we are the uh, the straw that stirs the drink here, and not the offense? Do you think he kind of fueled that competition? Do you think guys wanted to play better for him, uh, just in general? Oh, sure. No, I mean, I, I think exactly right, and he fueled that that. Uh that that tension you know and that's how our our practices started you know so you know when i was a pit um you know like the offensive line was kind of like we set the tempo in practice you know and when i got to the bears it was the opposite it was the defense and the defensive line so i mean i think the first you know couple weeks of you know training camp you know i got in a fight practically every day because you know i said they're not going to do that to me and uh you know a lot of you know and then several of them got pretty aggressive you know but they didn't after that i think they had to understand that you know this you know we're not going to take this and this you know you gotta you gotta be able to practice you know you can't you can't just you know like dick the city used to throw the offense around like ping pong balls they weren't going to do that to me so you know, I think what happened then is we got that, you know, and as new guys sort of coming in and plus the guys that were there, tough guys like Keith Van Horn and, you know, Jay Hilgenberg and people like that. I mean, we, you know, it just needed, it just needed to come to a point where then, hey, this isn't going to happen any game. So, but you know what, it made us both better. I mean, it just made us both such better, you know, units, the offense and defensive line. We had great respect for each other. Let's go. Let's talk about the Super Bowl. Uh, going into that, did you guys just know that it was going to be a blowout? Was there any worry at all against the team that you were facing? I, I'm sure a guy like you probably didn't want to underestimate his opponent, but I think the team as a whole, were you guys pretty confident going into that one? Um, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, a a after we lost to Miami, which I think was the best thing that ever happened to us because, you know, we just – we didn't think we'd get beat by anybody, you know, that's how good we were. And I think, you know, Steve Fuller, was, you know, Jim was out and Steve Fuller quarterback like three games where I think it was like the combined score of three games, like 120 to nothing, you know what I mean? So, and then we go down to Miami and, you know, you got Dan Marino and Don Shula. I mean, you know, Hey, you know, they're, they're, 
those guys are Hall of Famers. And so they put a game plan together and, and they just outplayed us that game. But you know what? Like I said, it's the best thing ever happened was because, you know, we just say, hey, this isn't going to be easy. You know, we're going to we're going to have to work at this, you know. And so then as as the season kind of pushed the restart button, restart button, we just, you know, we just plowed through it after that. And then when we got to the playoffs, I mean, there was nobody going to beat us. So, um, I mean, I think you can see the playoff performances, you know, two shutouts and then, um, you know, the Super Bowl. And I, I think when we got to New Orleans, um, it's kind of different. You know, New England was a wild card team, you know, that, you know, and I don't want this to sound bad, but I just think they were just kind of happy to be there, you know, right. because it took them, you know, it was such a hard road for them. And they were a great football team, too. I mean, they're AFC champs. Uh, but we were going to win a Super Bowl. So I think it was just two entirely different attitudes, you know, and uh, we had a lot of fun while we were there, but I mean, it was business. And so, um, you know, I think you saw that. Yeah. And I mean, the 1980s alone was dominated by the NFC with, with the 49ers, with the bears, the Redskins, yeah. uh, the team formerly known as the Redskins yeah. uh, and, and some of the giants as well. So you had some great competition there and I'm sure, you know, getting through, all of that, and then seeing a wild card New England team had to be a little bit of a breath of fresh air. Um, do you think Walter should have got the carry at the one? Yeah, you know what? That's really unfortunate, no, because you know, as an as, as it, you know, being really close with him, and you know, Matt Suey and I were roommates on the road, and him and Walter were really tight and best friends, and and. Um, and being really close with them, I just wish he would have said something to us, you know, because he didn't say anything to us. And I wish he would have just said something in the huddle, you know, or or, or someone would have said something. But that just wasn't Walter. He wasn't going to do that. You know, he just had too much pride. And we didn't even think about it. We didn't even think about it. I mean, if you if, if you go in there and look at that game, uh, you know, wherever he went on the field, the entire New England defense went with them. And, you know, their number one goal, and they said it that week, was to stop Walter Payton. And they felt like if they stopped Walter Payton that, you know, Jim McMahon and Matt Suey and Willie Galt and the rest of us weren't going to beat him. Well, they were wrong. You know, Jim McMahon scored twice that, that game. Matt Suey scored. Um, I just wish he would have said something because, you know, we would have given it to him a hundred times, you know, just to – to get it in and and it's just it just was unfortunate i mean i i think i know mike dicka feels bad about it to this day you know a lot of people blame him for that i don't because you know even jim mcmahon said it we didn't even think about it. you know it just it just it just never crossed our minds yeah i mean considering who the quarterback was i don't think there would have been any issue audibling at the one yard line to a running uh, just a dive up the middle now, you know what? I also think that when you when you look back on that, you just wish that, um, you know, that, uh, like I said, he would have said something. But but for, you know, what was kind of really interesting to me was for everything that he accomplished, everything he accomplished, you know, over 100 touchdowns, you know, National Football League, you know, rushing record, you know, the greatest Chicago Bear of all time. You know, I think the greatest football player of all time. And it was that touchdown in the Super Bowl. And it just, it just, uh, it's hard to even think that that was so important to him, but it was. And like I said, I, I wish he would have just said something because we were rolling and it didn't even, no one even thought about it. 
On a different note with Walter, uh, did you ever get worried when he was jumping over top of you guys? Were you, always, were you ever like, hey, man, we're all kind of tall, so this could be difficult <laughs> for you? Nah, he had the he had the leaps. He could he could uh, you know he could do it. Uh, you know what I mean, around the around the end zone, he was just an incredible player. Um, and um, you know, I, I think also with him, Noah. I mean, one of the toughest toughest individuals you know that I ever played with. I mean, remember you know, when I was pass blocking one time and he we got tangled up and he was trying to get out for a pass and. You know, like me, defensive line, everyone falls on the back of his ankle. And I mean, it was like this, like, and boom, you know, and it, and uh, he, you know, I helped him up and I could see, you know, what pain he was in. And uh, it was third down and we came off the field and he was back out there on first down next series. I mean, I mean, I, I, his ankle, you know, it was like that the next, uh, you know, next day, but I mean, and played the next week. So, I mean, I just think that when you think about guys like that, um, they're, you know, they're special people. You ever run the hill with Walter Payton? I never did. No, yeah. I never did. Uh, he never got me out there and uh, I would have resisted that. <laughs> I didn't have to go that way. I decided to go that way about five yards. But I mean, he, he had tremendous lower body strength because of everything he did. You know, I mean, he was just an amazing person. And uh, we were in the weight room one time and, you know, lifting weights and, you know, um, there was like, you know, we were doing warm-ups on our benches and there was like 315 pounds on there, you know, and he comes in and whistling around like this and Clyde Emmerich said, hey, Walter, but he never, you know, he's a strength coach. He never will come in there. He goes, what's that on there? He goes, you know, 315. He went, okay, see you guys later. <laughs> I mean, he was just, he was a special guy. Yeah, I mean, they say we're all born equal, but then you look at someone like that and you're like, I disagree. I could not, yeah. yeah. We're going to get right back to my interview with Jimbo Covert, but first, a word from our sponsors. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I want to talk to you now about another famous ball carrier during your time in Chicago, one who was a little bit bigger than Walter Payton, and that's the Fridge. Yeah. Uh, did you get excited when he would come in? Because... He wasn't just used in the Super Bowl. I mean, you you guys would use him. Uh, I think you you threw a pass to him against the 49ers sure. in the playoffs. Um, did you guys get a little amped up knowing that the big boy was coming in to get the ball? Um, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, you asked a question about, you know, being, you know, afraid of Walter leaping over. I was afraid of him running into me from behind, you know. Yeah. So, you know, when I would get in there, I would get as low as I possibly could because I was like, okay, I'm going to go as low as I can because if this guy hits me, he's going to have to get pretty low to get there, you know. Um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I think what happened was, you know, the year before, we played the 49ers in the NFC championship game, you know, we didn't play well and uh, it was a close game in the first half. And then, you know, they, we just couldn't score. Um, and we were coming off the field and the 49ers players were like 
bring an offense next time. And, uh, you know, it was embarrassing. And so, you know, um, but one of the things that they did there was they, um, you know, they put Guy McIntyre in the backfield as a, as a blocking back. And uh, we remembered that. I mean, I know Coach Dickett did. Um, and uh, I just think just to, you know, jam it down our throats. And, you know, that's football. Hey, you know, you know, they did it. And then the next year, we did it. You know, we went back out there in, in uh, 85 and beat them pretty good. And then at the end of the game, we put uh, William Perry in. And that's how the legend started, you know. So it was kind of interesting. Um, had you ever seen – have you seen anything else in the NFL similar to the the pandemonium, the the mania that was the refrigerator at the high, at its height, how he he was just so beloved? I mean, he still gets – endorsements and commercials and there so, so much is written about mm-hmm. how popular he was and, and just because of how unique of a character he was. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a super individual too. I mean, he is, and uh, he's just a genuinely likable person and great teammate. And, um, you know, he's having some health problems now and that's unfortunate. Um, he's got to get a handle on that. He's just, you know, he's, he's William Perry. So it's hard to, you know, to convince him of that, but I mean, just a great teammate. And I mean, always had a smile on his face, always, you know, you know, pumping people up and positive attitude and just a great teammate. You know, I mean, if you think about it, a 16 week season is a grind, you know, and when I came from, from Pitt, you know, we had two weeks of training camp and then, you know, you had, you know, 11 games or whatever. And, you know, so if you think about it, um, you know, uh, you're, you're you for halfway through the season, your eighth game or ninth game after six weeks of training camp, your your college football season was over already, right? And you got another eight games in the NFL, and so it's a grind. And so you know, a lot of times guys get cranky. You know, I mean, you're living with people for you know 16 weeks, right? Um, plus six weeks of training camp, getting you know kind of miserable as the season goes on and uh never him you know so he uh just a special guy you grew up in pittsburgh in the pittsburgh area do you think the 85 bears uh could beat the steel curtain maybe 78 79 steelers if they were to both play each other in their primes you know if we could get like a time machine and bring them to those two together at their peak who would win that game oh bears would win that game no doubt about it in my mind. And, you know, we just had such a dominant defense and we could run the football and people don't realize that, you know, everyone talks about the 85 bears defense. And I believe, you know, people, it, it's true. I think it's the greatest defense of all time. In my opinion, I saw it from the sidelines, you know, and I would see guys running, you know, wide open, but the quarterback was on his butt. I mean, the pass rush and that, scheme that 46 scheme just fooled a lot of people you know and it was difficult to defense but people forget i mean our offense we led the league in rushing led the league in time possession we were second in the league in scoring led the league in first downs that makes your defense pretty good when they're not on the field and we controlled the football you know i, I remember looking back sometimes I, I, I played in 110 games not including playoffs so let's say 120 but 110 not including playoffs or 112 or whatever and we led in time possession in like 91 of them so when you think about it that makes a big difference in, in in a football game right and when you think about that that's why i think you know we would have done very well against the steelers 
Um, you know, I, it, it's almost sacrilegious for me to say, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh and, um, I mean, they're my heroes. You know, I'm going in the Hall of Fame with Donnie Shell. I told him that. I saw Mel, you know, Blunt and told him the same thing. And I saw Joe Green and, you know, I was 75 in high school and, and 75 at Pitt. And I wanted to get 75 when I went to the Bears and uh, a veteran had it. And so I couldn't get it. And so, you know, those are my heroes. So for me to say that takes a lot. But he's uh, I mean, I think we would have played very well against those guys. I mean, that's a fair answer. I mean, that's there's not a million documentaries about the 85 Bears. There's not a million books written about them for for no reason at all. I mean, it's it's an iconic team. Um, so I was looking through your just career accomplishments and out of, you know, you've had the all pros, the Pro Bowl awards, the championship, obviously. But I think the thing that was most impressive to me was you faced Lawrence Taylor and the Giants three times in the postseason. He went head to head with you, and he had zero sacks, and yeah. and and all, all in all of those matchups. Mm-hmm. Take me through preparing for arguably the greatest defensive player of all time, and on a huge stage. How how do you prepare for that, and how good does it feel to know that you came out on top in all of those battles? Um, you know what I, I think I. When I played against really good competition, I kind of elevated my game. I was able to do that. And um, and against, you know, Lawrence Taylor, who I do believe he is the greatest defensive player that ever lived. And um, and I just think that I just matched up well with him you know, physically and athletically. And, um, you know, and they didn't they didn't give me much help. You know, I mean, I, you know, that was our scheme and, um, you know, we slid away a lot and I, excuse me, I was a guy that had to do it. And so, um, and, but you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's a team game and, um, you know, I just felt like, uh, you know, we, we played well in those games except one of them. And uh, I think that helped us as well when you're not having, you know, long third and 10, third and 11, third and 15, that kind of stuff. So I think that was helpful. So uh, I want to talk that's my, about that, anyway. That's my dog ground, or, or you can probably hear her there. No, She's you don't hear it that bad. It's not that bad, but hey, it's all right. You know, when, when I got one underneath here, my wife's not here. I got one underneath here, and the other one over here. So, what kind of dog do you have? I got I got Jack Russell Terriers too. Okay, um, and uh, she she wants to go outside. I don't know. He's just laying down over there. So that's awesome. Um. So I wanted to talk about a couple of other things with your time in Chicago. Um, one, Super Bowl shuffle. I watched it a couple times. You were nowhere to be found. Nah, what the, what nah, the heck's going on? You too nah. cool to too cool to do an '80s corny rap video? No, you know what? Willie Galt was kind of the guy that uh, organized it, and he came up to me and asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said absolutely not. <laughs> Two reasons. One. I mean, you saw Gary Fensick and Steve Fuller dance. So, you know, I wasn't getting in any part of that. Right. Um, and uh, and then number two is um, I knew that lived forever. So if you saw it, how many years later, I knew it could live forever. And, you know, I just didn't feel like it was something that uh, I wanted to be part of. Plus, you remember, they, they filmed that the day after we lost to Miami. You know, and so they're talking about Super Bowl shuffle uh, and the day after we lost to Miami. So it takes, you know quite a bit of uh, courage to do that. Um, but that's how confident, you know, we were um, that year. I mean, yeah, like you think back like five years ago, the New York Giants went on a boat trip 
like in the middle of the week before a playoff game and they still get crap for that. But then you, you know, you go back to the 85, you guys are talking about the Super Bowl after a loss, but I mean, you're right. That did live on forever. I think the right move would have been for you to just, I, I respected the guys who just found an instrument yeah. and that way they didn't have to dance. Like, you know, the guy sitting at the drums or just holding a saxophone. Yes. Yeah, like, Humphreys and Calvin Thomas and Mike Tom's act, you know, their supporting roles were, really important to the success of the video. <laughs> so another thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, you had few disappointments in your career, mm. but as an unbiased media member, I have to hold you accountable in your subpar performance in WrestleMania two, <laughs> the Royal rumble. You were the, I, 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 you know, you like to do film when you study, uh, you want, you want to study film when you interview big name athletes. And I, I watched it twice. Uh, take me through that entire experience i mean i'm reading through the names here i wrote them a lot down you had your, yourself bill fralick was involved ernie holmes of the steel curtain uh harvey martin the the referees were ed tutal jones and dick budkiss but then you yeah. had the iron Sheik, andre the giant uh the heart foundation bruno san martino uh, how did you even get asked to do that uh you know what i don't know i mean i just got a call and you know i went up to see vince mcmahon and met with him and uh it was uh it was a really cool uh, uh thing you know so bill and i did it and got a chance to kind of spend some time together and then they took us up somewhere in upstate new york and uh you know just to kind of not really learn the moves but just kind of understand what it was about like you know the ring and you know do a couple things that we had to do and um and then uh uh, and then I got a chance to spend some time with, you know, like big John stud and the iron cheek and, you know, um, uh, Andre the giant. And I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was just an incredible experience, you know? And, uh, so obviously, you know, when we went there and met Vince McMahon, he was like, uh, okay, I only got, I only can, I'm only going to tell you one thing. And I want you to go, just don't let anybody know there isn't any Santa Claus. So, um, you know, just, it is what it is. Right. So it was just fun. And, uh, we had a good time. And, uh, you know, when you think about back then, people always tell me about that. The funny thing was, you know, so obviously kind of, we knew what was going on. And, um, so when I threw out, um, King Tonga and then Bill threw me out right afterwards. Right. And I'm slamming the thing. And, you know, I, I get people still, you know, like when I get, you know, some fan mail and stuff, they'll say you're, you had a horrible performance in WrestleMania <laughs> and you were whining and everything like that. You know, wrestling fans are great. And, um, but it was funny. So after, um, you know, after that happened, um, King Tong and I were kind of like, you know, battling a little bit. And then we walked off and he put his arm around me and goes, let's go have a beer. And that was how that thing ended. So we waited for everybody else to come in, had a little party in there. So. I don't know. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Did they script it out? Did they basically say, all right, you're the first one out. You're going to throw Tonga out. Or was it just kind of like, however we get here, we just need Andre the Giant to win? Or no, how, it was how pretty much, was it? Pretty much um, a, uh, you know, it was pretty much a known, uh, you know, understanding of, you know, the the sequence of what was going to happen, who was going to get thrown out first and how it was going to work. And uh, yeah, but I mean, it's entertainment and people love it. And um, I had a great experience doing it. You know, I wouldn't want to do that for a living. I mean, those guys are tough. I mean, they're jumping off the ropes and, you know, doing all kinds of flips and, 
you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, those guys are, I mean, you know, that's athletic. I mean, anyone, anyone that tells you that's not, when you see what they can do, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool, but uh, you know, they get beat up as well. And you're seeing some of that as well with some of those guys. Yeah. I mean, just looking back at that, I, I, I stumbled upon it like in a note and then I just Googled it and just watching <laughs> all the intros. I'm like, holy cow. I mean, Bruno San Martino, Pittsburgh guy. I didn't even know he was still wrestling. Yeah. In the Bruno, Bruno's the best. Yeah. Bruno was the best. And uh, I, they were like, you know, my heroes. Cause when I grew up, I used to watch studio wrestling right, with Bill Cardell and uh, Chili Billy. And uh, it was all in Bruno San Martino was in the mats and they always had the, you know, the ring, but then you, you were studio wrestling, your ring was just lit, but you know, people were fans were there, but it was all dark. You couldn't see any of the fans, you know, and Bill Cardell did it. It was, it was a blast, you know, so I was a big wrestling fan. And when it, um, you know, when I got a, uh, when I got a chance to do it, I said, I just got to be part of it. That was fun. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an all time memory right there. Um, so Looking through your football career, you had a relatively short career. Um, were, were you satisfied when you when you hung it up and called it quits? No, I mean, I wish I could have played longer. Um, you know, my three years I started a pit, I missed one game. And um, and I could have played in that game, but they held me out. Um, it was against Boston College. Or the next week, at, uh, Rutgers got hurt against Boston College. And then... Um, and then, you know, my first, uh, what, uh, four to five, I think five years at the Bears, I missed one game. Um, and I could have played in that game, too. So I had a pretty good run, you know. And then just I got nicked here and, you know, in 86 um, or 87 at the after the strike, you know, the strike year. In 86 in the Pro Bowl, I, I you know, I um, hurt my shoulder and, um you know, they kept, they x-rayed it, said there was nothing wrong, nothing wrong. And, you know, I played the whole year with it, kept popping out and that wasn't good. And then um, I had to get that fixed. And then I hurt my ankle and I missed three or four games that year. Right. And then, um, then the next year in training camp, you know, we we always started training camp with Oklahoma drill. I mean, can you imagine that today? I yeah, mean, I, yeah. That's it, just insanity. For the first three, I mean, first day pads, like no like warm up like you know helmets and like pads and then you know every year I was there for the eight years I played that we had Oklahoma drill the first three days that's what we did and he lined up against Richard Dent Dan Hampton C McMichael William Perry see who's tougher you know um, that's how we started and set the tone um, and I got hurt in in doing Oklahoma drill and um, yeah and then I just uh, you know I missed eight games that year. You know, because I had back surgery. I came back too too soon from back surgery. Um, I came back six weeks later. I played a game against the Vikings. I did not play well. They put me on IR. I ended up starting the last eight games and then the playoff games. And we went to the NFC Championship game and lost in San Francisco. Um, but I was never the same after that. You know, I mean, I came back too early. And the things I tried to – I did naturally before, I just couldn't do anymore, um, which is frustrating. Um, and then, you know, I, I, you know, started, you know, I think I started 15 games and 16 games in 89 and 15 and 90. I could have played one of those games, but I went to training camp in 91 and hurt, you know, I just a simple block and I felt something in my back and I just said, you know what, this, I'm not going to go through this again, you know? Um, and no, I think the most frustrating thing for me is I, my, my game was, I could wear someone down physically. I mean, I could. I felt like during the games that, 
you know, as the game progressed, you know, we've come off the field and Johnny Rowan was, you know, the, uh, the uh, running back coach. And he would say, what do you think about this play? What do you think about this play? Can you make it? And we were a left-handed football team. And can you make this block? Can you make this block? And um, I said, yeah, I mean, I, I'm wearing this guy down. And I couldn't do that anymore, you know. So I became more of a, you know, like here and more of a finesse guy, which I hated. I hated more than anything. Um, and um, I just said, you know what? I had an opportunity after I had back surgery again to go to a couple of different teams. I was only at Plan B free agency, you know. Um, and I just felt like it wasn't, I didn't want to be a shadow of the player I was before I was a, I was a shadow after 88, you know? Um, but you know, my first five, six years in the league, you know, I'll put the way I played up against any, you know, tackle that played for sure in the eighties. Um, and even before that. So, I mean, I, that's kind of the way I feel about my career. Wish I could play longer, but I respected the game enough to say, I just can't do it anymore. And then recently you found out that the game respected you back. Uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2020, in honor of the 100-year anniversary of the National Football League, they expand uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame class. And uh, you get that phone call from David Baker, finding out that you're one of the few who get to wear the gold jacket. Uh, as, as Deion Sanders says, he has a gold yeah. jacket that he didn't pay for. Uh, so um, take me through finding out about the hall of fame. Uh, and then there are a couple more things I want to ask about that, but first off, how just getting that phone call had to have been pretty special after all the time that's passed since you stopped playing. Yeah. You know what? I think there comes a point where you just think, excuse me, it's not going to happen. And, um, you know, I mean, I just was at that point in, in, in my you know life I just thought it wasn't going to happen um but I think an interesting thing changed that and that's when they went to the you know that they put this blue ribbon panel together to select uh, seniors in the centennial class and you know um and I'm not saying anything against writers um you know but they don't they just didn't have the perspective that guys like Bill Belichick and John Madden and you know, um, and Carl Peterson and, you know, personnel guys. And then you have players like Ozzie Newsom and Dick LeBeau. So they had a completely different perspective. Uh, and then writers were on there as well from the senior committee and the guy, Dan Pompey, who's from Chicago, who, you know, felt that I had a decent chance when the, when the format changed. So the perspective was entirely different. And I think that's, that's, you know, the reason I got voted into the Hall of Fame. I think if it was the old process, I, I I probably would not be elected just because it was a, you know, short career guy. And, uh, you know, when you get that stigma as a short career guy, it's it's hard to overcome that. Um, but when you had guys like that in the room that had different perspective of what you actually meant to your football team and how you changed the football team you were on and how you improved it and how important you were to the team, then, um, you know, that's when good things happen. And I got the call from David Baker. So, I mean, I'm just extremely grateful for that. So you get the call, you find out you're going into the Hall of Fame. And I, I know how all this kind of unfolded because I used to work in Canton this past year. There were a lot of big plans for the centennial ceremony. They had a, a whole second week planned that was supposed to be on uh, September 17th or 19th or whatever, the second week of the NFL season that was going to be the NFL's birthday. They had all this enshrinement stuff. Then it all gets canceled because of the pandemic. 
Um, you're still going to get your day where you get to give your speech and you get your jacket. Um, but take me through, I was there when you got to go to the NFL hall the pro football hall of fame mm-hmm. for the first time. What was your experience just being greeted by the staff at the front door and getting to see all the, all the shrines and everything. How was all of that for you? You know what? It was, it was awesome. I had my son, Scott with me. It was the, actually the third time I was ever at the hall of fame. Oh, okay. The first time I was at the Hall of Fame, I went on a uh, field trip in eighth grade um, or ninth grade in high school from Freedom. And, you know, all the football players went and we went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, and uh, then the second time I went through it was when we played in the Hall of Fame game. We played the Browns, I think, in 90. Um, so we took a tour through it then. And then... Um, and then this time, so it was the third time I was at the Hall of Fame. <clears throat> and just going through that, excuse me, and seeing, you know, the greatest players of all time. And, uh, you know, uh, then kind of, you know, shaking your head and realizing that you're going to be in there with them. Um, it's just really hard to even, you know, um, you know, comprehend when you think about it. So. Um, I was happy to have my son there and got a chance to meet the staff and, you know, they, they've been so great. And, you know, unfortunately this, this whole year has been tough for everybody and yeah, that's unfortunate, but uh, you know, as they say now, it's going to be twice the fun in 21. So we'll, uh, we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Um, So on your, on your, on your bus, are you going to have James, Jim or Jimbo covert? Uh, It's Jimbo. You know, I, I think, I think, you know, I, um, that's how people, you know, w- when I got to, when I was at, all the way growing up in high school and everything and went to Pitt, it was always Jimbo. And then I got to the Bears and for some reason, you know, they just, I don't know, they just went with Jim and then people started, you know, and I, I remember people coming, is Jim Covert the same, is that Jimbo Covert, you know, when I was with the Bears and, um, and so, um, but all my teammates called me that. That's all my best friends call me that. I mean, that's who I, that's my name. So, um, and I think a lot of football fans do as well, right? So I just felt like that was the appropriate name to be called. And I think I'll be the only Jimbo in the Hall of Fame. So where where'd that nickname start? Was that just something given to you by your parents or family or what? Um, you know what's funny? My my uh, uh we had a family doctor in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. His name was Dr. Tridal. And um we went there, and so I remember going there. I was a little all the time, but you know, as kids. But then when um, he's a family doctor, and uh, when I was born, um, he delivered me, and that's what he that's what he called me um, after my mother said his name's going to be James. He goes, he looks like a Jimbo to me, and that's what the name stuck. And that was the second, the day I was born. So I've had that name forever. That doctor needs to go to Canton and point to your uh yeah trying to say hey look look that was my idea yeah. i don't think he's with us anymore he was pretty old when i was a kid but um, he was a he was a great guy that's awesome uh so jimbo what are you up to now that your football playing days are done i know we're gonna hear from you in canton sometime soon uh with the speech and the gold jacket and everything but uh, what have what have you been doing after uh your career came to an end we well, you know, was very fortunate i played in the greatest city in the world chicago and and um, I mean, if you're a professional athlete and you want to 
look at, you know, what you want to do when you're done playing. I mean, what a great city. So I was really fortunate to meet a lot of people that, you know, in the business community and, you know, got a chance to meet them in different kind of functions and charity functions and just kind of connected with a couple of them. And, you know, I started my career, uh, met a guy named Vern Laux, who was a former chairman, CEO of Baxter Healthcare and, uh, you know, super individual. And um, I started working for Baxter Healthcare, you know, in 91. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, early, late 91, early 92, cause I was on IR in 91. So I think December I started or whatever. And, uh, and that's when I, um, you know, started my career in healthcare business. So very, very fortunate started in sales and moved to operations and M and A and, you know, and, and so, you know, I went with several different companies. I work with, you know, Baxter, Caremark, Horizon CMS, I went down to Hell South as part of the turnaround team, and um, you know, after after all the problems that they had there, and uh, helped turn that around. And then, you know, I ran a company in Pittsburgh for ten years called Institute for Transfusion Medicine, which does a tremendous job. You know, Central Blood Bank and you know, Life Source and those businesses, and um, you know, we ended up merging with one of our you know largest players in the industry uh, called Vitalin, and they're doing a great job. And so many great employees at Central Blood Bank in Pittsburgh that uh, you know I owe a lot to, and and um, and you know as part of that I was you know over the years you know I was involved in you know some private equity uh, transactions and companies, and I was an independent board member uh, with several of those, and uh, with a company called Cressy and Company in in Chicago, and you know Brian Cressy's a tremendous individual, and you know. Um, and my partners there. Um, and so I was a full-time operating partner um, about uh, last July. So I've been there and um, it's just enjoying it. And, you know, we help a lot of smaller emerging healthcare companies, um, you know, help them with funding, help them with strategy, help them with guidance and governance and um, help them grow and become great companies. And it's just a lot of fun to, to see, you know, people, CEOs when I, was a younger CEO, you know, working with them. It's, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Sounds like you're uh, doing all right. So yeah. uh, just want to thank you once again for coming on. Um, had a great conversation with you and uh, good luck to whoever's after this one. This was uh, this was an all timer. Jimbo, okay. thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.